0: Royal Stanley of Oregon Pacific Financial Advisors, offering securities through United Planners Financial Services member FINRA SIPC, guides clients with empathy in discovering and reaching their financial goals, and creates financial plans for clients so they can live their life by design. In these episodes, he relates his expert financial insights and discusses timely topics. Royal strives for excellence and has a passion for sharing his knowledge and supporting his community. Now, on to the show.
1: Hello, and welcome to Life by Design with Royal Stanley of Oregon Pacific Financial Advisors. Royal, good afternoon. How are you?
2: Good afternoon, Eric. I'm doing well. How are you doing? I am doing great. I am
1: excited. I'm going to be learning alongside the audience here. You brought a guest on the show. That's Mary Farrell, correct?
2: That's right. That's right. We have uh, Mary here joining us today. Uh, Mary is the founder and executive director of uh, Maslow Project uh, based here in Medford, Oregon. And I'm I'm just uh, so happy and so honored that Mary agreed to do this uh, and uh, hopefully educate uh, our audience a little bit about what Maslow does in the community. So, Mary, thanks so much for being here today.
3: Oh, thanks for having me.
2: I'm sure most of our audience has some uh, familiarity with Maslow Project, probably have at least heard the name, Uh, but can you tell us a little bit about what Maslow Project uh, is and what it does here in the community?
3: Yeah, happy to. So Maslow is a nonprofit serving Southern Oregon. Uh, We have um, a variety of programs that are really aimed to help children, young adults, and families who are experiencing some level of housing instability, and that is a pretty broad definition. It's it's usually not uh, what people typically think of when they consider the, the term homelessness, um, but it can include a lot of situations that uh, cause a lot of disruption in children's lives, particularly in their education as well. Uh, so these would be families or children who are um, with their families who are either camping uh, kind of year-round or living in cars. Uh, sometimes they take up residence in a local motel, um, doubled up with another family because they couldn't afford their own housing. Uh, they might be staying in like a shelter type of environment. And and sometimes they are truly unsheltered. And these are all just sort of um, examples of, of what we would consider housing instability that, uh, you know, there's an opportunity for us to provide a service to. So when we really talk about the population we're serving, um, that would be children between the ages of 0 and 18, and that young adult, 18 to 24 age range, and then families, of course, who have dependent-age children. And uh, we provide services both in Jackson and Josephine County, and they really range from what we call basic needs and Safety net services, which are really designed to stabilize folks and stabilize children, so that they can focus on higher level goals. So, yeah, we do provide a lot of emergency food and hygiene supplies, school supplies, um, you know, perhaps camping gear if if they're in a campground, uh, like life survival kinds of items. But the idea is that it's you know providing them the stability that they need, so that they're not solely focused on hunger and survival. Um, And that sort of allows their brains to sort of settle into thinking about, you know, school or jobs or finding housing or connecting with other services. So we really like to think of it as a hand up and not a handout. So those stabilization services are sort of the first response that we provide. Um, And then we provide a lot of advocacy and case management, uh, really focused on keeping kids in school, uh, connecting to critical services, and that could be mental health, um, health care, employment training, uh, you know, sort of the whole run of the gamut of services that are out there. And a lot of our programs actually happen on site in public schools, uh, ranging between Ashland and Wolf Creek, and as far west as cave junction and as far east as um, beautiful. So we're kind of, you know, all over the county and our services and schools are really aimed at keeping those kids, um, connected to their education removing barriers that might make it hard for kids to be in school or be successful in school. We provide a lot of sort of tutoring and, and educational supports as well as just advocacy and making sure those kids, um, have a voice, especially if they're not connected to a family or a parent or a guardian, and then helping them transition into either college or workforce uh, or or trade school. So there's a lot of focus and energy on helping homeless youth especially um, complete their education and then move on to phase two. And then in the more recent years, we've also added this permanent supportive housing program where we are working in partnership with the Housing Authority of Jackson County, Um, to offer affordable housing to families that we've worked with for a long time we have had a lot of barriers to uh, finding stable housing and then continuing to work with them once they're housed to work on growing income and skills so that they at some point can move into uh, mainstream housing and then that opens up a new unit for another family who kind of just needs a leg up and so yeah, like it's kind of a comprehensive approach, and our real strategy is to remove barriers and walk alongside folks, teach them how to self-advocate, and and work towards higher level goals.
2: Amazing, amazing. You know, I think the the interesting thing with Maslow, and and uh, for the listeners, uh, you know, I've known Mary since probably what two thousand nine, two thousand and ten, uh, and then I've served on the Maslow Project Board for what, eight, eight or nine years, I think. So, uh, you know, I'm, I'm pretty familiar with Maslow, but, you know, I think like a lot of people, the first interaction with Maslow um, was hearing about what you were doing in the community with just kind of providing for basic needs there, you know, as, as far as, you know, making sure kids w- were getting the food they needed, making sure they had the school supplies or uh, hygiene products that they needed and, At first, I was like, "Well, this is an amazing program. This is this is what uh, you know kids need." And then, as I learned more and more about Maslow and kind of broadened my education about all the things that you and your team there were doing, it was, "Oh wow, there's a whole other level of Maslow project beyond just, hey, here here's a, a meal or here's a food box. It's here. Let me help you navigate this incredibly complex." social services network where so many people just kind of fall through the cracks we're going to help you kind of navigate this and and show you how to advocate uh, for yourselves and really get the support that you need uh, either as a child or as a family or as an unaccompanied youth to start working through and moving forward to you know whatever goals they were setting for themselves and i think that's the the amazing part of Maslow Project is um, you know, you're really trying to meet these kids uh, where they're at and help them get to uh, where they want to go. Um, so, uh, you know, I just I just applaud you for, for all that you're doing over there. Um, can you talk a little bit about what your average um, uh, age is for the kids that you serve? Because I think there's a there's a big misconception out there about this.
3: Absolutely. And I first just want to acknowledge, Royal, that you are such a great spokesperson for for our organization. Um, You probably said that better than I did. So thank you for that. Um, Yeah, the biggest misconception that I hear out in the community is that Maslow works with homeless teens, like teenagers. And while that is true, there's certainly a number of young adults and teenagers that we support, either in school or out of school, uh, the average age of the youth that we work with ranges between 10 and 11 years old. And that can cause people a little confusion. They're like, wait, there aren't, there aren't hundreds of 10-year-olds who are homeless out there. And actually, they, there are one in 10 students enrolled in public schools in Jackson and Josephine County experiences homelessness at least at some point in every single school year and and has for the last 20 years that I've been doing this work. And what that means is that those 10-year-olds are homeless along with their entire family. So whether it's mom or dad or mom and dad or aunt, grandma, um, that whole family unit is experiencing homelessness and then that 10-year-old is part of that family. So Obviously, you know, we're working with families who have younger kids to help stabilize the family and connect them to services and ultimately help stabilize their situation because that then benefits kids. And the real focus there is 10-year-olds, you know, or or any student, any youth should not have to move schools every time their housing is disrupted. So if we can keep those kids in one school all year and make sure that transportation is provided and that they have what they need to stabilize their education. Um, So sometimes, yeah, we might be working with the family and then it benefits the kid. And then as kids get a little older, uh, eighth grade and up, we're working oftentimes directly with that youth and and helping them be successful in school, but also successful in life. And one of the things that you said that uh, means a lot to me, Royal, that you actually understand that is visually, a lot of people just see, oh, food boxes or oh, you help with clothes or school supplies because we do a lot of drives in the community to raise those kinds of supplies to give to kids and families. Um, I think you've been a big supporter of our school supply drive every year since I think I've known you. And so that's sort of what people see, but that's just the tip of the iceberg. And, And really that sort of walking alongside them and showing them how to connect to services, facilitating those service coordination pieces, not just giving them a phone number and saying, oh, if you need mental health, you can go here, you can go there, but let us call together. Let's walk you through the intake process. Let's sit with you so that you feel comfortable and connected and do that real warm handoff. Um, You know, the complexity of navigating social services for even adults who have all the tools, you know, communication tools and transportation and access to a cell phone or the internet it's challenging for, challenging for you and I sometimes. So imagine then being a teenager or a youth or a family who's really dealing with a lot of complex crises and oftentimes trauma, having to sort of figure that out on your own. It's it's hard. So that's really kind of where our bread and butter is 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 helping people establish you know, basic stabilization, security, and then set those clearly identified goals and then walk through the steps with them and hopefully help them get to a place of system independence and self-sufficiency and, and being able to self-advocate.
2: And, and really, I mean, that, I think in my mind, that is is one of the most exciting things about what Maslow does is be Because you are working with these kids, trying to get them out of homelessness and poverty um, before they become adults and lose access to all the different services that are really designed for kids, it's really designed to kind of take advantage of this this period of time and get them on a path to success. So, um, you know, I just want to kind of call back to two things you mentioned there. Number one, 10 years old. I mean, that's... That is insane. the The average age of a homeless kid uh, that that works with Madison Project is ten years old. That is that is you know shocking and, and disgraceful. to Be honest, you know a ten year old just shouldn't have to be dealing with this. And then when you say one in ten kids that are enrolled in school are facing homeless homelessness uh, in some form, and I know homelessness isn't always what we think of. It's really just. Uh, not having a stable home environment uh, that's you know a fixed residence you know is is just just blows me away I mean think of it in in a class of 20 which you know is a pretty small class in in today's uh, educational system you have two kids right there that are dealing with homelessness in every single class which is just terrifying so kind of coming back to all this and and i I want to get into how covid and uh, the fires we experienced last year affected Maslow Project and the people you serve. But before COVID happened, um, you know, I know the numbers, you know, both um, nationally and in the state for kids that were experiencing homelessness to actually graduate from high school were, were really, really low. Can Can you maybe just talk a little bit about that?
3: Yeah, you actually bring up a few good points. So I'm going to touch back really quick to, you know, the 10 years old thing. And what that really means is we have just as many families with babies, infants, toddlers experiencing homelessness as we do, you know, teenagers or families with with teenagers. So that it gives you just a sense that this isn't a problem of teenagers. This is a problem of, you know, people, you know, families and um, individuals and and there really isn't an age group that's somehow more or less, you know, immune to experiencing homelessness. And the other thing that I've heard um, people say as well, you know, oh, you're, if you're not literally on the street or under a bridge, you know, is that really homelessness? And what's really important to point out here is, you know, the twenty-one. 1,000 Oregonian students last year that were identified as McKinney-Vento eligible, which is the federal definition of homelessness, which you actually correctly identified as lacking a fixed, adequate, or regular nighttime residence. The thing that is important to keep in mind for your listeners is that when they think about sort of the traditional chronic homeless population The single most contributing factor in adult chronic homelessness is a lack of a high school education. So you're exactly right when you say the key is to get upstream and try to stabilize those individuals while they're youth, while they're students, while there's supports and break that cycle so that they do not become part of the chronic adult homeless population, that they are empowered with their education and that there's a plan for their future. Um, so that, that's really what we're, we're all about. And then getting to your uh, second question, <laughs> which was... Right. Going, going
2: back to kind of what, what are those statistics about kids that are oh, experiencing graduation. homelessness yeah. uh, graduating yeah, so, from high school?
3: No, it's really good. So nationally, uh, on average, only 25% of high school students who experience homelessness graduate with a high school diploma. And in wow. Oregon, um, you know, we like to think that we're help, helping to bend that curve. Uh, we have historically had closer to 50% graduation rate. And I think this year, uh, it's as a state, it, it might be a little higher than that. But in the districts that we serve, we have seen over the last five years a uh, jump from really trending with the average state, which is around 50, 56%, uh, to then 76% as an entire district um, in most of the districts we serve, they're graduating roughly, you know, three out of four of their homeless students, which is is great, but the, we still want four out of four. You know, we, we don't want to leave any kids behind. And within the group of students, we specifically are providing that intensive case management to last year, 93% of our seniors graduated on time with their peers with a regular diploma. And, you know, statistics are interesting because, okay, was that 10 kids? No, it was 163 kids. So that's um, huge progress. And when you think about what the national average is, it's it's really phenomenal. I'm super proud of our team and also our partnerships with our public schools. I mean, we can't do it without that partnership. And I've just seen a a really positive trend in the last um, couple years of – Really identifying every kid and making sure every kid has what they need to be successful, and it's it's definitely a collaborative team effort. But it's trending in the right direction. Mm.
2: I I think that's one of the most phenomenal statistics when we talk about Maslow Project um, that that people can can hear about is you know the, these are real lives that are being touched and you know really giving a chance to have a platform to, to kind of build a successful life in front of them because they have that that kind of basic entry into adulthood, which is a high school diploma. Um, that's phenomenal. So I just want to thank you and your staff for for all of that hard work uh, going into helping these kids uh, graduate from high school because that that is phenomenal. That is phenomenal.
3: Yeah, that's um, the goal.
2: So I, I wanted to touch on just, just real quick, if you wouldn't mind, um, is sharing how Maslow Project started. Uh, You you are the founder and and it it has been a few years now. Um, uh, How did Maslow Project start?
3: Um, (laughs) Let's see, what's the short version of that? Uh, Well, um, earlier in my career, I was actually an employee of the Medford School District and uh, the the federal law and the federal legislation that was passed for public education to really track and identify and know who their homeless students are, was actually passed in 1987. And by the time I graduated high school or high school, college, high school and college, um, public schools were still pretty new to um, embracing this this federal legislation around knowing their homeless students. And at that time, it was pretty limited to just know who they are and keep track of them. So I started working for the district in the year 2000. And um, one of the first things that I, and I was, you know, born and raised here in Medford. So uh, to be hired into a, a program, which was to specifically find your homeless students. I mean, I was like many, probably other local Southern Oregon natives where my first thought was, gosh, I, it's not like when you go to Portland or San Francisco, and you can just see homeless people on the streets and on the street corners and um there's a very hidden population here. And so I wasn't even aware that we had as many people experiencing homelessness as we do when I started. And I spent a lot of my time out in the field. Like where, where are they? And visiting campgrounds and going to family shelters or visiting people in one room hotels where the bathroom, you know, was also the kitchen and also the laundry. And just understanding what the needs of people in these situations are and how hard it is to navigate the system. You know, the system is really designed to support its employees, in my opinion, more than it is the customers that they're there to serve. And so I, out of my own personal frustration and trying to, you know, it's not enough to just know who those kids, kids are. You have to help them. Like, how do you... How do you be a high school student and focus on your math assignment or your senior project when you don't know where you're sleeping that night, you don't know where your next meal is coming from, you might have safety concerns? It's just, um, you know, to me, it's a critical element of supporting these kids to have resources to support them, And, and that's really how Maslow got started. It was sort of out of my own reflection of what the need was and how it was challenging to sort of figure things out. And so I created Maslow Project um, to be sort of a one-stop, like, meet you where you're at. We have street outreach. We can come to you. We can have a drop-in center where you can come to us. We don't just have to meet in school if that's a barrier. Uh, Making sure that we can reach populations that might uh, be only Spanish-speaking or part of LGBTQ or um, migrant or, uh, you know, have other language barriers or communication barriers, and, and really just expanding our outreach so that we are providing sort of a facilitated path into services. And, and whether it's like I said, we go to you or you come to us. Um, we started collecting various resources, and you know, opened a food pantry. And then, I think around the time that you and I were introduced, um, you know, we had our first drop-in center in downtown. Medford and we were able to offer things like laundry and a clothes closet and to sort of expand our offerings. And it was really just this evolution of like, okay, in our first year that we were open as a drop-in center, we saw maybe 40 individuals come by and, and take advantage of our resource center. And by year two, we had 800 individuals. And and so the need was just so dramatic and that just one thing led to another. We started adding mental health counselors and job coaches and, you know, expanding our school-based services into Ashland and Phoenix Talent and Upper Rogue. And then a few years ago, we expanded into Josephine County and, and uh, then we added housing. And so we're really trying to respond to the needs of the community and remain flexible and nimble. And in many ways that that actually led to a, a better response once COVID hit so, yeah, it's just been an, an evolution, but it came out of the need.
2: How did COVID affect the the population of kids who are dealing with homelessness and then all of a sudden uh, the schools aren't open anymore? How it's were those good. kids affected and how, how did Maslow respond?
3: Um, I think that being disconnected from schools has not been good for any kid. I, I don't, you know, I have... You know, children in my personal life, nieces and nephews, and kids of friends. And it, I don't think any kid is particularly doing well in this type of an environment. You add homelessness to the equation, and um, we're seeing a lot of increases in anxiety and mental health, social isolation. Um, yeah, it's not good. And to think about, you know, at home learning, well, if you're a parent or if you're a student and you have reliable internet, and you have a place to do your Zoom classwork, and um, possibly even a parent or an older sibling around to help you with your assignments, Uh, you know, it's still challenging, but at least that's something. And for kids who are living in their car, I mean, how do you connect to the internet when you don't have access to the internet? How do you charge your Chromebook when you don't even have access to electricity on a consistent basis? How do you really get that help if your parent really has to work? Uh, so you're kind of home, <laughs> home, so to speak, on your own to figure things out, and and that's really where we've been able to, I think, provide a lot of that bridge work and help kids, especially um, homeless kids, connect back into their school. So we have our student success advocates really out in the field during this uh, past year. Can't believe it's been a year, but it has. Um, we've been meeting with kids on park benches and helping them through their assignments. We do a lot of um, video and text communication with kids to, okay, we can help you troubleshoot and problem solve, you know, whatever that challenge is. We've been delivering a lot of Chromebooks and hotspots to kids or helping to coordinate sort of a local point where kids can go to like charge their computers or Connect to the internet, taking them uh, all of the things that they need to be, you know, still in schools. So kids still need school supplies, even though they're working from home. Um, and so, really, like when the day of the stay at home order hit, we sort of knew that that was coming. We could kind of see the writing on the wall. And as a homeless uh, person of any age, you know, especially kids, if the places you rely on for support, so food pantries, you know, faith-based organizations, places like Maslow School, those are your safe places throughout the day. And suddenly, all of those are closed. You know, that's a pretty scary place to be. So we have always had a street outreach um, element of our programming, and we just amped that up like literally overnight and started doing. I like to compare it to like Uber Eats or like Instacart. We just made all of our services to go. So you can either come to the building, and we've done a lot of curbside pickup and you know, still getting a lot of resources out into the community, or if people have had transportation barriers and they're homebound, whether that's at a remote campground or a hotel, we've just uh, loaded up all of our vehicles and had our staff doing a lot of deliveries of groceries and, and all the things that people need, and then while we're there, taking advantage of that, you know, ability to socially distance and still provide that advocacy and case management and troubleshoot and make sure that, you know, we're helping them think through childcare access. You know, a lot of parents didn't have the option of working from home um, and still had to sort of, you know, keep some level of income coming in. And then you've got childcare issues because kids aren't in school. That's been really challenging. But I I think that the greatest part about Maslow's ability to adapt in that period was that we've we've always been more about who we are and what we do and not so much where we're located. So we just, rather than making them the the people that are our customers convert to our way of doing things, we just converted ourselves and just bit, we either went virtual and worked remotely and provided technology to people so they could stay in contact with us and their kids' school, or we just took our services to them. And uh, we were still in crisis mode when the fires hit. And so in many ways, we were already um, sort of doing that work that was then needed to just added that layer of coordinating between FEMA and the Red Cross and helping people through those different applications and emergency hotels and you know, like I also like to think we kind of fill the gaps. So we're really good at identifying where there are other resources in our community, connecting people with those, helping them make that connection, and then like let us fill the gaps where there isn't that resource Then we can come in and make our resources have like maximum impact. And that's really just been our mode of operation for the last year. And it's it's been pretty effective. I mean, we still are connected to all of our, we haven't really lost any kids in the process that um, you know, we're starting to transition back into school along with teachers and our kids are right there with us. So, you know, all things considered, um, it's been a really busy year for us and it's it's pushed us and challenged us as it has everybody. And I, I'm just really pleased that we've adapted along with the rest of <laughs> the rest of our community to, to never have a lost day of service. And it's just helped us be even more creative. You know, how do we just reach people who you know, traditional methods of making people come to you don't don't work. So, yeah, I'm actually pretty excited about some of the accomplishments of this past year, all in all.
2: That, that just sounds like an, an amazing undertaking. Uh, and, uh, yeah, I'm just so proud to see all that Maslow Project has done in the community through this, you know, just, just terrible times, especially for this population of, of people. So thank you. Um, you know, as we get, as we get close to wrapping up, I, I just like to take a moment and and ask on behalf of, you know, listeners of the podcast that might have heard the name or maybe, maybe this is our first introduction to Maslow, um, where should they start just learning more about it? And then after that, you know, what are the needs that Maslow has right now in the community?
3: Um, the best way to really like learn more about Maslow Project or the impact we're having in our community is our website. And if you go to our blog posts, um, there's some really great short videos, not very long. A few of them are like three, four minutes that really introduce our staff and our programs and kind of show us in action, especially this past year, like what what does it look like to have services out in the community during a pandemic and respond to the wildfire. So some really good videos. There's another video that sort of our 10-year anniversary video where I give a lot of the history, like how Maslow got started and our evolution and, you know, our response to changing needs in our community. And then there's another great video that really, um, tells what it has been like this past year to not only deal with the pandemic, um, but then finally getting housed only to lose that housing only a few months later during the fires in Phoenix and Talon. And it tells the story from that family's point of view. That's a really great wow. video. So that that's where mm-hmm. I would drive people is just MaslowProject.com or follow us on Facebook and Instagram. We really try to be highly communicative um, via social media and keep our website content current. So that that's sort of step one. And then what are we needing right now? That's a great question. And in some ways, um, we're just still working through, like obviously the state and the federal government have thrown a lot of resources at the fire victims and in response to COVID. So we've, we've actually been pretty fortunate and been able to increase our staffing levels this past year. And haven't really had super pressing need for stuff. The challenge is going to be as some of those one-time earmarked funds for fire response or COVID response go away, as they always do, that need is going to continue to be there for a long time. We're going to see this increased wave of homelessness once the FEMA response is, is done and people are no longer in hotels, and once the uh, eviction moratorium is lifted, if, if there isn't some sort of reprieve which I think there might be some assistance coming from the state for that too. Um, We're just going to likely see this increase in homelessness. And there's a lot of different responses regionally and sort of dealing with the different populations of homelessness. And for us, the thing I would just ask of your listeners is to, you know, the single best thing they can do for us is if they learn something new today, to share it with somebody else. And the more widespread that people understand who we're working with and what we're trying to accomplish and break that cycle and stop youth from becoming part of the sort of chronic homeless situation. Um, that helps us more in the long run than really anything else.
2: Wow. That, yeah. Just, just so much that you guys are doing in the community. i um, you know, wh- one thing I'll suggest, even though, though you didn't suggest it, is um, I've been a monthly donor to, to Maslow Project for, for a number of years now. That is a great way just to kind of keep Maslow in your thoughts, even if it's five or $10 a month, uh, of just supporting Maslow and, you know, keep, keeping this good work going uh, that you're doing in the community. So I just wanna thank you, you know, from the bottom of my heart for all you've done for Southern Oregon. Um, you you truly have made it a better place. And, um, you know, thank you to your entire team and staff there at Maslow. Really just, just top-notch people doing, uh, you know, the absolute best for our most vulnerable people here in our community. So, Mary, thank you so much for being a, a part of our podcast today.
3: Well, thank you for having me. and And thank you for <laughs> speaking up about that, which I often don't think about. And it's just that ongoing support no matter, you know, no matter what that looks like. And and having the long-term supporters like you and many others who who contribute to our holiday program or our school supply drive or monthly donors um, or our annual campaigns. I mean that that is the reason that we have been able to be as consistent and continue to grow and respond to the needs of our community. And we can't be where we're at doing our work without you and so many others like you who've supported us. So that is a mutual appreciation and I'm, I'm grateful to have the chance to talk today and share a little bit more uh, with your listeners.
2: Well, thank you so much, Mary. We appreciate it. Uh, Eric, do you want to take us out here? Absolutely. Mary, I, I'm so honored to meet you
1: and to hear your story and to hear uh, the history of uh, all the work that you've done. And so thank you again from myself for being on the show and Royal Thank you for letting this be a, an opportunity to shine a light on a very, very bright beacon in your community. I know that your listeners are are fantastic people and they're, they're educated by you with all the content you bring. And this is content that I think is going to really hit home for them. I'm hoping they step up and, and uh, really make a change in your community uh, in addition to what you're already doing. So thank you, Royal. And of course, our last thank you goes to you, the listening audience. Thank you for tuning in and listening to the Life by Design podcast with Royal Stanley. If you have not subscribed to the podcast yet, please click the subscribe now button below. This way, when Royal comes out with a new podcast, it'll show up directly on your listening device. This makes it much easier to share these podcasts with your friends and family. And I would ask you, please share this one. It's important. Again, thanks for listening today. For everyone at Oregon Pacific Financial Advisors, this is Eric Johnson reminding you to live your best day every day, and we'll see you next time.
0: Thank you for listening to the Life by Design podcast. Click the subscribe button below to be notified when new episodes become available. The views expressed are those of the presenter and may not reflect the views of United Planners Financial Services. Material discussed is meant to provide general information and is not meant to be construed as specific investment, tax, or legal advice. Individual needs vary and require consideration of your unique objectives and financial situation. Always seek the advice of your financial advisor or other qualified financial service provider with any questions you may have regarding your investment planning. Advisory services offered through Oregon Pacific Financial Advisors, Inc. Securities offered through United Planners Financial Services of America, member FINRA and SIPC. Oregon Pacific Financial Advisors, Inc. and United Planners Financial Services are independent companies.